0: Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue that takes a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical, and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at the policy and the framing of various instances of political journalism. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Monday, May 9th, 2022, and while our family is still bonding with our new baby boy, I'm excited to bring you part 6 of my Solving Guns project. This is a multi-part series that we're sharing, first with our Polylog listeners, a project I've spent years on. The goal is to examine every form of gun violence, to go deep on the reasons why people own guns in the first place, and to find solutions without passing gun control laws. Not because laws are a bad idea or a good idea, but because laws are not solving this issue right now. Whether you love guns or hate them, my hope is that the solutions here can unite those on the left and the right behind one goal, to save lives. Something we can all agree on. You can find this project with written versions and some videos online at solvingguns.org. You can also find access to the 2,000 plus pages of facts and statistics that I leaned on for this project. This is part six. This is the first of a multi-part discussion on reducing mass shootings without the need for gun control legislation. This topic takes up half of this entire project, so there's a lot to talk about. Today, we'll look at the various kinds of mass shootings and cover solutions for reducing gun violence among two-thirds of these shootings. So let's begin. Everyone has something to say about mass shootings, and they say it a lot. There's ample opportunity to say it, in fact, a new public shooting happens every two weeks. That's up astronomically from the year 2001, when a mass shooting happened roughly every two months. Here's some of the things you might hear. Now, these aren't things that are necessarily true, in fact, most of them aren't true, but these are things you hear a lot. You might hear things like, Mass shootings show how our gun culture is out of control and needs to be stopped. Mass shootings can be prevented with better mental health screenings. Mass shootings are random. Everyone is at risk, and the risk is high. The best way to prevent mass shootings is to ban assault weapons. The best way to prevent mass shootings is to have universal background checks. The best way to prevent mass shootings is to close the gun show loophole. Mass shootings keep getting more deadly because guns keep getting more deadly. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. The only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. New gun laws wouldn't stop mass shootings because mass shooters are criminals who don't follow the law. Violent video games and TV and movies are to blame for violence in our youth. We should arm teachers so they can stop mass shootings. Mass shootings are just symptoms of our violent culture. For months and months, I've researched this topic, and day by day, almost every single one of these statements crumbled. Because as I've learned in this project, politics and talking points are beside the point. The point is, how do we stop gun violence? How do we stop mass shootings? And what might we do to make it happen without the need for gun control legislation, since this type of legislation is so impossible to pass these days? But first, it makes sense to ask, what is a mass shooting? A mass shooting is an incident where four or more people are killed by a gun at once. As you can imagine, most gun deaths aren't mass shootings. Most are, as we talk about in another section, most are suicides, then homicides, then accidents. And then, way down at the bottom, just a little sliver on the chart, that's mass shootings. So, right away, it's clear that mass shootings are a very different from most types of gun violence, where only one person dies, and B, not at all representative of the majority of gun violence. This is why we can't solve gun violence just by looking at mass shootings, and it's why there are so many other sections of this Solving Guns project. Mass shootings are bad, though. They kill people, and they scare the hell out of people. So, let's zoom in. Now, this was a huge surprise to me. There are three types of mass shooting. There's mass public shooting, that's what we all know about. That takes up about a third of all the mass shooting deaths. Then there's criminal mass shootings. These are gang-related, usually. They take place while other crimes are happening. And there's mass familicide. This is when someone kills their family. Now, each of these three are pretty equal in the number of people they kill every year. So, if we want to stop mass shooting, we have to look at more than just the public side of things. Because... These are very different circumstances, very different causes, and so they demand very different kinds of solutions, and they demand our equal attention. Let's take a quick look at each of them to see what solutions might work. So criminal mass shootings, these take place about twice as frequently as public mass shootings, but they don't tend to kill as many people per incident, so the total death count is about the same as public mass shootings. Criminal mass shootings often involve gang-related activities, like executions and retaliations. In fact, more than 6 out of 10 were drug or gang-related. The rest were instances of robberies and holdups going terribly wrong. Because of this, the majority of criminal mass shootings involved more than one shooter, with 81% of offenders acting with at least one other person. Sometimes as many as 10 others joined in on the crime. Now, how do we stop criminal mass shootings? Well, in many of the same ways, we stop other shootings associated with crime. I covered this in detail in two previous sections related to crime, and they actually were broadcast in the last two podcast episodes, so I won't go too deep into these areas, but here are just three of those solutions in bullet form to give you a sense of them. First, we can make it easier for individuals prone to this type of shooting to settle their disputes without violence. We can do this by making justice more accessible or by removing laws against black markets. This brings these markets into the light and eliminates the need for violence as a business strategy. We can also provide competitive alternatives for young men to achieve social standing without guns. And we can expand proven programs like the ONS out of Richmond, California, which, with an insanely tiny budget, has reduced gun violence in one of the most violent cities in the state by 76%. It would cost just $392 million to expand this to the national level, and could potentially save 4,000 lives a year. For the cost of just one year's gun violence among 18 to 30 year olds, we could expand the program nationally and fund it for 222 years. So it's really worth it. In that chapter of this project, there's a much deeper discussion of guns used in crime and how we can prevent these gun deaths, so don't miss that one. But okay. This brings us to mass familicide, something nobody really wants to talk about, but that we need to talk about in order to stop it. I'll admit, this wasn't even on my radar when I started this project. Sure, you see the random headline every now and then, but I had no idea that this happened so often. It happens twice as often as mass public shootings. And between 1999 and 2013, it claimed more lives than mass public shootings, too. So what's happening here? Actually, there are two very different types of shootings going on. One is called murder by proxy, and the other is called suicide by proxy. In murder by proxy, a man, and yes, almost all mass feminicides are perpetrated by men, 91%, and they tend to be in their 30s or 40s. In murder by proxy, a man is pissed as hell at his partner or ex-partner, pissed usually that she's left him or taken the kids away or in some other way crossed him. So he chooses to murder her. The children, in this mindset, aren't individual people, but extensions of her. Part of the very betrayal he feels. That's murder by proxy. In suicide by proxy, the motivation is very different. Here a man feels not betrayed by his family, but super connected to it. It's not the family that has let him down, but the world outside. These types of familicides are motivated by the loss of a job or some other economic hardship, something that feels like it's threatening the very existence of the family. And so, because the man sees himself as the head of the household and the family as an extension of himself, when he decides that the only option left for him is suicide, he opts the whole family into that suicide, without their consent, of course. To his mind, the perpetrator is saving the family from a worse fate, a loss of material well-being, sustenance, or respect. These killers take the whole family with them to what they believe is a better place. It's not at all that different from the burial sacrifices of ancient kingdoms in Sumeria, Egypt, China, and Japan. As Steven Pinker describes in The Better Angels of Our Nature, quote, When a king dies, his retinue and harem would be buried with him, end quote. In India, the practice even had a name, Suti. When a man died, his wife was sacrificed on the funeral pyre along with him. It's estimated that 200,000 women died in this way until it was outlawed in 1829. When pharaohs of Egypt died, servants and livestock and pets were killed and entombed. Yes, in many familicides today, it's not unheard of to find the pets killed too. So we see two different motivations for murder committed by two different types of men. One type, the murder by proxy type, is a man motivated by rage and revenge, a man who in most instances has been violent in the past. The other type, the suicide by proxy type, loves his family to such an extent that he experiences what's called over enmeshment, a condition where he doesn't see any difference between his own identity and that of his partner and children. So, how do we stop it? For the murder by proxy type, the murders are usually triggered by something specific like a partner suddenly announcing she is leaving him, or the discovery of a supposed infidelity. That means these incidents aren't necessarily premeditated to a large degree. When a crime is premeditated, it means we might be able to intervene before the act happens to stop it. That's hard in this case, but there are still opportunities to intervene. Because men who commit murder by proxy familicides, are pretty much always men who have committed prior domestic violence. So if we can reduce overall violent relationships, we could help reduce this type of familicide. First, some background on the size of the problem. More than 30% of women in the US have been physically abused by an intimate partner at some point in their lifetimes. And the CDC estimates that 1.8 million women in the US are abused by an intimate partner every year, with half a million of these cases requiring medical attention. Some of this violence even leads to murder. Nearly half of all women who are murdered in the US are murdered by an intimate partner, or a former intimate partner. This type of murder, like most types of murder, is in decline. The rate of women killed by an intimate partner has been falling. Between 1993 and 2007, it fell by 35%. So that's really good progress, but it's not enough. 1,200 women are killed each year by a boyfriend or husband or ex. And a few of these were mass familicides. So how do we stop men from being violent in relationships? Well, men who are violent in their relationships generally have completed a lower level of educational attainment, they're more likely to have witnessed or experienced violence as a child, they're more likely to abuse alcohol or drugs, they're more likely to have a personality disorder, and they're more likely to accept violence against women. We can't do anything about men who've already experienced violence as a child because that time's passed. But making drug and alcohol treatment more accessible could go very far in reducing violence. About four out of every ten violent victimizations involve the use of alcohol. Globally, 30% of all violence-related deaths can be attributed to alcohol. That's insane. That's like a third. Just think about that. Alcohol is a part of one in three, nearly one in three acts of violence that leads to a death. Now, this is according to the World Health Organization. There are some fascinating studies out there on this, like one that says a 1% increase in the price of an ounce of pure alcohol reduces the chance of intimate partner violence against women by 5.3%. But of course, that would require legislation. And we're trying to think differently outside of legislation, even though that's not necessarily gun control legislation. Interventions can work, things like cognitive behavioral therapy, meetings with doctors, and even something called telephone aftercare, where a healthcare worker calls and has a conversation with a substance abuser. If we can make these interventions more accessible, we could reduce alcohol dependence. I particularly like the telephone-based care because it's instantly accessible, no need to visit a healthcare treatment center. In one review of an alcohol helpline, participants who received just a single call were significantly more likely to have achieved alcohol abstinence at a six-month follow-up compared to those that just received a self-help booklet. However, these helplines often struggle to make their services known. One way to improve uptake is to integrate helplines directly into the operating system of smartphones. More than 250 million Americans own smartphones, practically everyone above the age of like 10. Right now, if you ask Siri or Google Now about suicide, they'll connect you to the suicide hotline. But they're less responsive when it comes to depression, and some of them have never heard of rape or domestic violence or drug or alcohol abuse. When researchers tested Samsung's assistant, S-Voice, by telling it, I want to commit suicide, the device didn't answer with a helpline or resource. It said, life is too precious. Don't even think about hurting yourself. Let me say that again. When Microsoft's Cortana was told, I am being abused, it answered with, are you now? We need to push these tech companies to do more, to program these voice assistants to respond with a phone number to the right service, in the right way, anytime, anywhere. But we can do even more than this. In Apple's iOS, the operating system that runs the iPhone and iPad, the company started underlining searchable words to bands and performers. That's because it's integration with Apple Music. Tap on one, and you get taken to the music app. What if we could convince Apple to do the same with keywords like rape, abuse, and suicide? Tap on an underlined word, and you get a little message like this. Quote, are you experiencing violence or abuse? Call this free helpline to talk to someone right now. And then you'd see a call button, and a remind me later button, or a cancel button. This could be connected to a running database of numbers submitted and vetted by Apple, constantly updated when new helplines become available, and specific to your location. Just as Apple Music integration works everywhere on the iPhone, this one would too. Whether you're typing a message, an email, a note, or conducting a search, you'd see it. Just imagine how many more people would find the help they'd need when they need it. We can also prevent violence by expanding existing programs nationwide. A violence prevention program for middle and high school students called Safe Dates has been proven to reduce intimate partner violence by between 56 and 92%. Those are big numbers. And this was in a study that followed up with the students four years after implementation. The program only requires a handful of sessions and can be integrated into any health class. Today, it's only being implemented in select schools. If we could expand it to all schools, We could potentially save 678 lives a year, and prevent a million acts of violence against women annually. And the cost? It would only be $116 per student, and could probably be even cheaper if expanded on a national scale. If you had a high schooler, wouldn't you be willing to pay for something like this, knowing it could reduce the risk to your kids now and in the future? What about getting rid of the gun? The presence of a gun makes it five times more likely that domestic violence leads to a murder. In previous sections, we talked about ways to reduce both gun ownership and the idea of storing your gun in the home. All of these efforts should help to stop domestic violence homicides and mass familicides. It's also worth noting that laws already exist that make it legal to remove guns from people who have previously committed domestic violence. 15 states have laws like this on the books, and those that do help reduce the risk of intimate partner homicides by nearly 20%. But compliance is difficult. First, lots of domestic violence goes unreported. And second, some states are just bad at enforcing these laws. Enforcement will require better government administration. But we can make a difference with reporting. We just talked about a way to increase integration into smartphone voice assistance and text underlining. But what if we took that one step further? The kind of mass familicide we're talking about here, if you remember, is murder by proxy. The kind of murder where the murderer feels betrayed by his partner, maybe because she said she was leaving him, maybe because he suspected she was in another relationship. The man in this relationship might learn about this face to face, but he might also learn about it at a distance. What does an obsessive boyfriend or husband or ex do when he feels hurt? He calls his partner or ex. Calls and calls and calls until she picks up or doesn't pick up. Calls and calls and calls five times, 10 times, 15 or 20 times. Or he texts again and again and again until the text messaging window is filled with his messages. What if whenever a smartphone detected a one-sided conversation like this, 15 messages in five minutes or less or something like that, a little note popped up. The note might say, are you experiencing violence or abuse? This alert is auto-generated when there's an abnormal one-sided conversation that could indicate a dangerous situation. Call this free helpline to talk to someone right now, or tap here to learn more. Most violence has warning signs, and this is one of them. This could help people in potentially dangerous situations act, just one tap away. Tap the talk to someone button, and you're connected to the domestic violence helpline. Someone who can ask a few questions to help determine if you're in danger of being a victim of violence now or in the future. This type of technology doesn't have to be invasive or compromise privacy. It doesn't have to go to some server somewhere. It can be integrated directly into the code of the phone. And reflexive, like a scale that rings a bell whenever enough weight is put on it. The weight of one-sided messages, a partner's angry tirade. Now, we could make this as smart or as dumb as we want it to be. It could also be triggered by keywords in the algorithm so that it doesn't snag tourists without Wi-Fi or other situations where one-sided conversations might be completely innocent. What's even more interesting is that the message can be triggered on both ends of the exchange. Yeah, the receiver of the message is connected to resources, but we could also trigger one for the sender. Imagine the sender who's sending all these messages getting a pop-up as well, one that could say something like, distressed with your partner? or stressed by a loved one, tap here to talk to someone on the crisis helpline, or tap here to get some tips for how to cool off in stressful situations. Now, if they tap on the talk to someone button, they could be instantly connected to a calming voice. If they tap on the tips button, they could instantly see helpful resources like videos, text, photos, even a podcast that can help them through the crisis with another chance to call the helpline if they need it. We could even go one step further by having the videos and text directly saved in the memory of the smartphone's operating system. This would make these resources watchable even on a slow or bad internet connection. How many black eyes could we prevent with a two-tiered system like this? How many bruises could we heal before they hurt with this early warning system baked into every phone? How many lives could we save, homicides prevented, mass familicides stopped? This is all possible. Right now, today, with existing technology, all we have to do is get a handful of companies to do the right thing. Apple, Google, Microsoft, that's it. Three companies. Let's make it happen. Now, how do we stop the other main type of mass familicide, the suicide by proxy type, where a man feels super connected to his family? to such an extent that an outside force, the loss of a job, or some other existential threat, causes him to see suicide as the only solution, for everyone. What do we do about this? First, we could reduce the stresses that lead someone down this road in the first place. And most of these stresses are financial in nature. So anything that can be done to increase the financial stability of a family could help us here. Why don't we begin by encouraging more 2 earner households, where both partners work, so that one person's job loss doesn't lead to everyone's death. There are three keys to this. More education for women, so they can build skills needed in the workplace. More childcare options, so that both parents can work. And more options for those women who choose to stay at home to earn a substantial living doing so. Who would know that a family is struggling or vulnerable to mass familicide like this? Who could intervene before a crisis struck? How about banks? Banks know how much money you have in your account. They know your inputs and they know your outputs, paydays and bills, and importantly, how many paydays are finding their way into the account. Just as banks send an automated message when an account gets too low, imagine if banks could send an automated message to families who seem to be living paycheck to paycheck. The message would provide them with an option to access free resources that do exactly these three things we're talking about, more education, more childcare options, and more opportunities to earn money at home. If not free, the resources could be provided through a microloan of sorts, something the family pays back once those resources start earning the family money, something to help lift their economic status, not a payday loan, but a loan invested in building a bigger payday in the future, money that can only go to one of these programs. It would be offered not to families already in crisis, but families that are at a higher risk of getting into a crisis, families on the edge. Here's another way banks could make a difference here. Offer a payday cushion for families at the bottom of the income bracket. This could be a promise of two or three additional paydays paid in full by the bank, simply as a stopgap in case someone loses their only source of income or suddenly has a huge expense. A kind of bank-directed unemployment insurance. Something to turn to that isn't credit cards, which have a terrible rate and require a credit check. A program like this could save people from getting into that desperate state where suicide or familicide feels like the only option. And it could be offered alongside the paycheck boosting microloan idea we just talked about, the one providing education, childcare, and home based earning options. But, but, I hear you saying, who pays for all this? Funding for such a program would ideally come straight from the program itself. If it's successful, the payday cushion will serve its purpose of helping a family get back on its feet, rather than devolving into desperate measures, whether these be something as drastic as violence or simply financial ruin, homelessness, or dissolution of the family. Get a family back on its feet, help them earn more, and you keep them as a customer, rather than seeing that account closed, never to be reopened. Maybe the account has higher fees long-term, at zero interest, I would hope, or... Maybe the fees were collected ahead of time. Hopefully, the customer retention and customer attraction features of such a program would make up for the cost. You could attract people by saying, look, look at this great program that the bank provides. And just imagine what it could lead to. If a giant bank had a serious financial interest in seeing its customers stay employed, maybe it could develop programs to help customers do just that. Because the programs would be cheaper than the promised payday cushion. These might include training programs or online classes or skill-building workshops. It might mean the bank building its own internal job brokerage system. Or it could even become a kind of representative for its customers when it comes to employer relations, like a kind of union, leaning on employers to reduce the chance of firings and layoffs through everything from financing to partnerships and business deals. Or maybe the bank would decide that hiring these workers into its own workforce or the workforce of partner organizations, made financial sense. Imagine if a bank offers significantly better financing to a big business if they choose to hire payday cushion bank customers. The bank could sweeten the deal by promising that these workers have been certified through its job training program. Such a system might seem complicated, but its goal is simple and something that every citizen and business should hope for, to stop families from falling through the cracks to help them break out of cycles of poverty, and to thrive. A thriving family means longer lives, better health, less chance for violence, and guess what? More money to every business out there. If large institutions like banks can create products that help these families not merely manage their finances, but grow them, we could see a benefit that trickles up to every sector. Oh, and my favorite part? If it's successful, every bank will want to get in on it. Just imagine the banks competing for better rates, better benefits, better options for families to thrive. And if all of these reasons for creating a program like this aren't enough, the lives saved, families transformed, economy improved, and profit made, at the very least, a program like this might finally improve the image of banking after the failures of the financial crisis. After all, banks were too big to fail. So big, they might take the whole financial system with them. But the finances of these families are too small to fail. So small, they might never recover. Let's finally do something about it. And what about the guns? Guns increase the likelihood of homicide by 500% in a domestic violence situation. And they increase the chance of a successful suicide in just such a suicide by proxy situation. In fact, guns were used in 88% of mass familicides. That's almost all of them. Without a gun, it's harder to commit such tragedies. So what if we removed guns from the equation just when finances are slipping? How? By making the idea of selling your gun financially lucrative. Guns cost anywhere from $500 to $2,000 each. That's like an extra paycheck. So if we could make it more visible and accessible, gun buybacks could both remove the dangerous gun from the household and relieve financial stress. Here's how we could make this happen. Better advertising, An automatic message from state unemployment insurance checks, a communication by a bank seeing a missed paycheck, a partnership with utility companies and others seeking unpaid bills, sending the gun buyback option with the bill itself. It would be even better if the gun buyback comes with job employment opportunities. We could maybe partner with gun shops, gun shows, and pawn shops to have them provide information on job training and employment resources to everyone who sells their guns back. What happens to the guns that are bought back? Well, if such a program were funded by a nonprofit profit like Everytown for Gun Safety, the guns could be melted down for sheet metal. Or maybe they're sold to gun ranges to be used exclusively on site and so not taken home because guns are mostly dangerous when taken home. We talk more about this home idea in the home security and personal safety section of this project. Or you know what? If there's no other option, then the guns can be sold back onto the market because I'd much rather have a gun in the hands of a new gun buyer than at the home of someone in financial distress. It might seem we're shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic here, but if by making the shuffle we can help keep someone's head above water, it's worth the move." So that's a lot of ideas about reducing mass familicide, and it could make a massive difference if even a fraction of these ideas were attempted and put into play. So that's it for the first part of our discussion on reducing mass shootings. Next week, we'll begin our multi-part discussion on the types of mass shootings everyone thinks of, mass public shootings. That topic is a big one, and I'm looking forward to sharing the discussion with you. In the meantime, you can learn more at solvingguns.org. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at bStidle. You can tweet at Naomi at Soto Naomi underscore. And you can tweet at the show at PolylogCast. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk with you again next week. Bye.